Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And today I'd like to remind you that we have this, uh, we have this uh, website called wealthformula.com with an abundance of resources for you to check out. In addition, you can join our accredited investor club which is uh, really where all the magic happens. This is the information. That's the playing field, right? So you got to get your get your uh, education on, and then you got to go implement it. And that's what uh, the accredited investor group is for. So check that out at wealthformula.com. Also, if you're interested, uh, there is a book that you can download called Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, an Amazon bestseller that I wrote. You can download that there, or you can simply text 44222 and type Wealth Formula One Word, and you will get that to your phone. It's the magic of technology. So let's talk about today's show. You know, I was reading an article about the 4% rule. Have you heard of the 4% rule? I'm guessing you have, as it seems to be, you know, it's sort of this magical number espoused by traditional financial advisors and bloggers alike. I see it all the time. And the idea is that you should be able to safely withdraw 4% of your stocks and bonds, uh, mutual funds portfolio to live on for retirement uh, for the rest of your life, presumably, although some people say that's not the case, but that's what I've read. Um the idea is that theoretically this 4% withdrawal uh, should be able to sustain you because traditionally the uh, growth of your portfolio will be greater than that and therefore you would have principal preservation. Now understand that that 4% is also based on a portfolio that is supposed to be significantly weighted by fixed income and dividends. Now, is it simple like that? Is it really that simple? Well, maybe it is, and maybe this podcast is completely worthless, and you know we should all just try to be driving in a bunch of money, and just until we get to that four percent point, you know, get your million dollars and live on forty thousand dollars a year sounds like a dream to me, doesn't it? Uh, listen, maybe it's simple. Maybe, uh, maybe it is, but maybe that's, um, and maybe all of this will just work out for you if that's what you do. I mean, frankly, that's what all of our friends are doing, folks. As you may have guessed, though, I am a little bit more skeptical about that rule myself. Why? Well, for one thing, I'm a real estate guy. 
So that's not really fair. You see, uh, I'm just biased. I'm a guy who likes income-producing assets with tax benefits that I can see, touch, and feel, uh, things that I can use leverage on safely and multiply my returns, all that stuff that I talk about on this show. It just doesn't really fit in for me personally. But the bigger problem that I see with this 4% rule is that, frankly, it's based on old data. Specifically, if you go back and you dig into this whole 4% rule thing, you realize that the modeling uses data, uh, the, the, the data from 1926 to 1976, all right? So a lot of you were not even born. That's the data we're using to determine the fate of your retirement. To me, that's, well, that's a little bit concerning. You see, the underlying assumptions of the 4% rule are that most of the portfolio income, again, is produced from dividends and fixed income. What is fixed income, you ask? Well, fixed income comes from bonds. And of course, bond yields are significantly reflective of what interest rates are doing. Now, I don't need to remind you that we are at historical low interest rate levels now, and our president is absolutely demanding negative rates. Now, how does that make you feel about the 4% rule now? Makes me feel a little bit concerned. I mean, not for myself, because I'm not really, you know, thinking about those kinds of rules um, because they're too generic for me to feel comfortable with, but it makes me feel very concerned for my professional colleagues, okay? Doctors and lawyers and engineers, Listen, they all follow this 4% paradigm like it's religion. And while it may work out, it sure doesn't sound like a risk that I would personally want to take. Listen, we live in unparalleled times, right? I mean, uh, negative interest rates across the world, this has never happened. And so how in the world can we use 100-year-old data to guide us into retirement? I mean, how is that possible? And I'll tell you what, there's no way I'm doing that. But the problem is that most of our colleagues will, and all we can do is watch them like an accident, ready to happen, hoping that they survive, right? Big collision coming. Let's just cross our fingers and hope that, you know, things turn out for them. In the meantime, what do we need to do? All right. You know, we have our own ways, right? We talk about, uh, but probably the biggest thing in my opinion, is financial education. That's what we need to arm ourselves. It's the best weapon uh, in defense to use against going broke, dying broke. And in line with that, uh, my guest on Wealth Formula podcast today, uh, he is a financial advisor, but he's also an author and educator. And I've invited him to learn about um, the biggest financial sector on earth, the bond market. Uh, And, um, you know, he's a guy who's written some really good basic books on that. And listen, without understanding the bond market, you cannot understand the economy. So this is something that you're not going to want to miss. So when we come back, Russell Wilde on bonds and the bond market. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits. 
and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to wealthformulabanking.com. Again, that's wealthformulabanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Russell Wild. He's a principal of Global Portfolios, an investment advisory firm based in Philadelphia. In addition to the fun he has with his financial calculator, Wild is also an accomplished writer who helps readers understand and make choices about their money. And amongst numerous publications, Russell is the author of Investing in Bonds for Dummies, which is what caught my eye, and Investing in ETS for Dummies, which we'll also cover as well. Russell, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thanks, Buck. Pleasure to be here. So give us a little bit of background on yourself. I mean, obviously, you you know, you you do this professionally uh, as an advisor, but also, you know, how'd you get into writing and all this? Well, I've been a fee-only advisor. Fee-only means I work directly with clients, only for clients. I take no commissions. I've been a fee-only advisor since 2003. And before that, I had spent a few decades as a writer, writing primarily about finance. Uh, way back when, I got an MBA in finance, and I worked as a credit analyst for a large bank that's now out of business. Uh, but I uh, didn't really like working in a large bank. Um, quit when I was 28 and uh, got into writing. And uh, I guess after writing about finance for, uh, for more than a decade or so, I got to a point where I felt I knew at least as much, if not more, as the people I was interviewing. Yeah. So I went back and got a uh, graduate certificate in financial planning. Uh, this was 2001, 2002. And Spent about six months working for another advisor and in 2003 hung out my shingle and I've been doing that ever since, both the writing and the financial planning. Got it. Now, I know you have a background in, um, uh, you know, what's not necessarily alternative investing, which is, is what we typically focus on here, but you wrote this book on investing in bonds for dummies. And again, I'm thinking to myself, that pretty much describes me when it comes to investing in bonds. Um, so what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about bonds and the bond market. So very broadly speaking and understanding that this is an audience of very smart people, but we've not really necessarily been educated on this, um, you know, the role of the bond market and equity markets. So what exactly is the bond market? Let's go with that basic. Well, let, let me start off by saying when you talk about alternative investments, I, I think of hedges hedges to the stock market. And as far as I'm concerned, although bonds are not an alternative investment by any means, uh, they are, in my mind, the only really time-proven hedge to right. investing in stocks. And we're talking, when I'm talking time, I'm talking literally thousands of years. Yeah. Bonds are, a bond is basically an IOU. Okay. It is an IOU. 
Yep. You give your money to a government, such as the U.S. government, which issues treasuries. That's what the U.S. government bonds or IOUs are called. Uh, or you give your money to a corporation or to a municipality. And they take your money and they pay you back a fixed interest rate. That's why bonds are altern alternatively called fixed income. Mm -hmm. um, if you buy a $1,000 bond paying 5%, you'll get $50 a year for as long as you hold that bond. The bond price may go up and down, but you're going to get $50 a year regardless. And that's really all a bond is. The bond market is enormous. Right. Much larger than the stock market. Uh, here in the United States, the world bond market is about $100 trillion. One trillion is a million million or a thousand billion. Um, to put that in, in relation to the stock market, uh, of that 100 trillion, the U.S. bond market is about 40 trillion. Mm -hmm. That compares to the U.S. stock market. The value of all stocks, all American stocks, adds up to 30 trillion. So the bond market is very, very important, both to the issuers of the bonds, the corporations, municipalities, and government, and of course, to the lenders, to us, those of us who invest in bonds. So let's talk about the um, role uh, of, of bonds in uh, traditional investing portfolios. So presumably it is the, you know, it's the hedge against the equities, right? I mean, is that, is there more to it than that? Well, I, I have to ask you, are we talking about the, the role as it is or the role as it should be? Uh, oh. Okay. Um, in my mind, the role as it should be, uh, I think bonds serve two purposes in a portfolio or should serve two purposes in a portfolio. Um, one is as ballast. Typically, when the stock market goes down, people rush to safety, safe bonds, we assume treasuries are safe. We assume the government is not going bankrupt. Safe bonds, when the stock market goes down, usually go up in price, mm -hmm. in part because of simple supply and demand. It's a little more complicated than that. But there is, there tends to be an inverse relationship between safe bonds, such as treasuries, and the stock market. Doesn't always work that way. Usually it does. In 2008, for instance, when... Everything went to hell. We, we, every kind of stock, every stock of every nation, um, REITs, everything went down in 2008 except for treasuries. Treasuries went up. The second reason to hold bonds in a portfolio is this dry powder. Mm -hmm. So if, if you're holding a portfolio, let's say, of 50% stock, 50% bonds, and you have a crash like 2008, Suddenly, without touching your portfolio at all, you have 25% stock because the stock market at one point went down 50%. Now stocks are presumably selling at bargain basement prices. You want something to be able to turn into cash so you can buy the stocks. So right. those are the two purposes bonds should serve in a portfolio. Unfortunately, when interest rates drop as low as they have, and they are, uh, one pundit said the other day, they're as low as they've been since Sumerian times. Right. I thought he was kidding, but he was serious. Yeah. He may be right. Uh -huh. uh, bond interest rates worldwide are, are extremely low. And at times like this, people get desperate for yield. So people start investing in junk bonds, high yield, otherwise known as junk bonds. And those do not serve as a hedge. Junk bonds tend to go up with the stock market and down with the stock market. They are not ballast, they are not dry powder, 
and in the long run, they don't turn, they don't return nearly as much as stocks. So I rarely, rarely use junk bonds in any of my portfolios. So you know, you you brought up a good, um, you you brought up something I think is is interesting. The idea that you know, um, even with the bond market and the interest rates uh, continuing to go down. Um, you know, that, that the yield on the bonds may not be quite what they were in the past. One of the things that, um, you know, I'd recently read was the idea of, you know, how the, the, the often cited 4% rule and that the 4% rule being that, you know, the idea being that if you, uh, you know, if you want to retire and you safely, you can safely take out 4% per year out of your, um, you know, your portfolio, and live on it forever, but that that was based on data from another time. At uh, that the data was compiled about twenty years ago, so it's missed all of what we've seen, and certainly has missed the uh, these crazy um, negative interest rates uh, in these environments. How does that affect? And and maybe maybe uh, maybe you don't agree with the assessment. Maybe it doesn't affect it. But how does that affect this whole four percent rule uh, paradigm that I think a lot of people still use? Well, the 4% rule does not say you can live forever. The 4% rule is based on someone of average retirement age, mid-60s, living an average lifespan, maybe 20, 25 years. So what the 4% rule says is if you have a diverse portfolio and you withdraw 4% a year adjusted for inflation, that is you take 4% of your first year's portfolio balance and each year you bump it up for inflation, you have a good chance or a very good chance of not outliving your money if you live 20, 25 years. Does the 4% rule now hold in times of very low interest rates? That's a very good question. Uh, the 4% rule uh, has looked at time frames over history and initially it looked at, well, what if you retired in 1929 and 1930 and 1931? Um, from 1929 up until you say about 20 years ago, the 4% rule held tight. There was never a 25, 20, 25 year period where you would have run out of money had you limited your withdrawals to 4%. With interest rates so low, I, I am suggesting that people in their mid 60s might want to limit their withdrawals to 3.5% a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think today's low interest rates are extremely low by historical standards. Yes, perhaps they're the lowest nominal interest rate since Sumerian times. However, inflation is very low. Yeah. So your real return on bonds right now is lower than the historical average, but not that much lower. Got it. Got it. So, um, you know, I'm particularly interested in the role of bonds um, as the, you know, as they relate to the global economy. Um, and, because of that, I think it's a you know good un, uh, good idea for us to understand the market better than uh, I think most people do. Can you give us a high level? Obviously, the pure size of the bond market is a is a big reason for that. But um, why is it important to follow the bond market if you want to know what's going on with the global economy? Gosh, um, the road you drove on to get to work today was probably built on money that your municipality raised by issuing bonds. Right. So bonds are really the, the great wheel greaser of, of modern society. 
when governments want to uh, run a deficit, as almost all Western governments are these days, uh, they do it by issuing bonds. There's no other way they could do it if they're spending more than they're raising in taxes. Uh, municipalities often run with deficits. Um, they want to build a tunnel. They want to build a, a new street, uh, put in train tracks. They almost always will sell bonds to raise the money. Uh, corporations the same way. Uh, it's usually a lot cheaper in the long run for government, for corporations to issue bonds than to issue stocks and give away a piece of the corporation. So bonds that have a uh, I'm sorry, corporations that have a good credit rating generally will prefer to raise cash to expand by selling bonds rather than issuing stock. Right. So let's talk about, for example, U.S. Treasuries and U.S. Treasury notes are basically, you know, bonds, the U.S. government, right? You're lending money to the U.S. government. Um, Are they, uh, what can we look at in terms of the correlation between uh, the price of U.S. Treasury notes and, um, and inflation? Well, the general thought, um, and, and empirically we have seen, when interest rates are lowered, it tends to pump prime the economy. Um, people will tend to spend more because it's easier to borrow. Companies will, attend to, it will tend to expand more and hire more because their borrowing costs are lower. Right. So when people are spending more, inflation rises. Uh, there are many, many correlates between the two, but I would say that that's the main one. And yeah. conversely, when interest rates rise, um, it, it tends to contract the economy, and that tends to lower inflation. Right now, we have very low interest rates and very low inflation, because strange things start to happen when interest rates get too low. And they're getting to that point in the United States and they are beyond that point in Europe and Japan where you mentioned negative interest rates. We don't, we don't have that now. Uh, we could get to that point. In, in Europe and Japan right now, if you want to buy treasuries, uh, although it flux, there's flux from day to day, you may have to actually pay the government to keep your money stored. You're going to get a negative rate of return. And... Never mind. We could talk about negative interest rates and, and what they mean, if you wish. But even in, in an environment where we, what we have now in the United States, ten-year Treasuries, last I looked, we're paying about one point six percent. Just keep eating, even with inflation. So funny things start to happen when interest rates get that low, because the the most rapidly rising demographic, growing demographic in America, is the elderly. Uh, we're going to have way more retired people yeah. in ten, twenty years than we do now. So these people historically, my parents, very likely your parents, they had fixed pensions and any other money they needed usually came from their treasury portfolio. And they might be getting 8, 9, 10, or 12%. Nowadays, people moving into retirement are, are very nervous because if they buy a bond portfolio, they're going to get squat. They're going to keep even with inflation now and chances are for, the next, for, for quite some years to come. Because current yields are a good predictor of future stock market returns over the next several years. So when, when you get interest rates that low, retirees start to freak and they start to spend less. So in, instead of expanding the economy, the lower interest rates can, can actually backfire at this point and start shrinking the economy. And I think that's what we're seeing now in Europe. So when you go to the extreme, 
it, those low the negative interest rates even in Japan and Europe have not helped grow the economy, which is one reason why so, the stock market is done thought is that that part of it the reason because it, it is curious to me that that has been so for the most part completely ineffective in europe yeah. um but that the, it's a psychological element of the the fear that comes um with uh a an economy that requires a negative interest rate well there, there's that too sure uh, uh, you know that that's what i find so fascinating about economics which was my major in college i, I just mm -hmm. love the, the there's so many interactions yes right. interest rates um well actually there, there are two interesting things here we should talk about the inverse yield curve mm -hmm. so um right now you can get as much on cash and very short-term bonds as you can in long on long-term bonds and that's that's called a flat or an inverse yield curve because day-to-day right. -day it fluxes, but you can actually sometimes get more these days on short-term bonds. Yeah. Than so that reflects a certain nervousness. People are taking money and putting them in long-term bonds for fear that interest rates dry, may drop lower. And why do they fear that interest rates may drop lower? They are cautious about the state of the economy. And that is the, that's the inversion curve that everybody is kind of uh, freaking out about when it happened. Inverted right? yield curve. Yep. Yeah. yeah, the inverted yield curve. Well, I don't know if people are freaking out. I mean, you know, it, it's, it, it's a way that you can keep short-term bonds and earn as much as if you were having long, as if you had long-term bonds. So some, so some people are saying, well, why should I have any long-term bonds? Because long-term bonds, uh, they do, they do. They're not as volatile as stocks, but they can be volatile. Well, my answer to that is you want both because yeah. interest rates may in fact go down, in which case, as we've seen over the last month, bond prices will go up. Right. But when that inversion has happened, it's been predictive of, of uh, recessions typically. Is that not true? Yeah, it, it's, there, there's a correlation there, but there are many correlations in economics. Sure. And I, I wouldn't by any means say that the inverse yield curve is, is a sure sign that we're going to have a, a recession, by no means. Um, let's talk about a little bit, you know, our audience is pretty real estate focused in general, and we're concerned about mortgage rates, which are, you know, uh, they're different, obviously, than Fed funds rate. Mortgage rates might be better correlated with the 10-year treasury price? Is that is that true? They're correlated to treasury prices. When we talk about um, treasuries, uh, we often use 10-year treasury as a proxy for treasuries because mm -hmm. treasuries are issued in weeks, months, two years, five years, up to 20, 30 years. They're talking about creating a longer-term treasury now. Um, so that the average is more or less 10 years. So, so when, you, when you talk about the treasury rate, Perforce, you're talking about the 10-year treasury rate. Is there a correlation between the 10-year treasury rate and, and mortgage rates? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, generally, all interest rates tend to move up and down together. Uh, there are many reasons why there, there's so much connectivity, but in a way, uh, treasuries compete with the bonds that are issued um, that, that hold mortgages. So mortgage-backed securities are a large part of the, of the total bond market. Those mortgage-backed securities compete with treasuries. When treasuries are paying low yields, the mortgage-backed securities like the Ginnie Mays and Freddie Mays 
Um, those can then sell on the market for lower interest, and therefore the banks can lend you money for less because they can borrow money for less. So there was this recent, um, is you know, just popped in my head. I'd be good to get your thoughts on this. This recent event in the repo markets, where you know basically there was an emergency injection of capital by the Federal Reserve. Wondering if it makes sense for you to talk a little bit about that and, and tell us if you, you know, what that was all about. And you, you were reading about it in the newspaper and a lot of people were going, oh, what that is. I've read yeah. it. I don't really understand, uh, you know, what, if any, significance there is to it. But could you address that a little bit? Well, there are two ways that the government generally can, can prime an economy or if inflation is running high, slow an economy down. And one is called fiscal policy. That's what you're talking about, actually. Well, what you're talking about is a combination of monetary and fiscal policy. Fiscal policy refers to government spending. When the government spends money, people get hired. Uh, when roads are being built and tunnels are being built, it, it, it boosts the economy. So when the government spends more, it tends to boost the economy. The government spends less. It, it tends to slow the economy. Um, then there's monetary policy, and that is largely through manipulation of interest rates, which the government has a lot of power over. Uh, the government can either speed the economy up by lowering interest rates or slow the economy down, that is slow inflation down, by raising interest rates. So, again, things now are not working the way they should, so the, the, mm -hmm. The, the government is taking some extreme measures at times to keep things in balance. There's a lot of fear of recession. We're not in a recession. Uh, and I don't want to veer into politics, but I think it's, it's a big mistake right now for the government to continue lowering interest rates because we will wind up in a trap like Europe and there will be no place left to go. And the government will, will stop having the tools Will, will be, the ammunition will be taken away from the government to help the economy in, in times of real need. Now is not such a time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, well, I, um, I noticed in addition to the bonds book, there was another, uh, book that you ha had written regarding, um, ETFs. And, uh, I thought it'd be a, a good chance to ask you about this. You know, there was a hedge fund manager, uh, Dr. Barry, who uh, who's kind of famous for that, you know, the big, uh, what was it? The big, uh, I know everybody's like, come on, you know what it is. Anyway, the big short and uh, the big short movie where he basically called the housing market. Uh, Dr. Burry was, uh, you know, sort of the star of the show there. Um, he's come out and talked about an ETF bubble. Uh, basically the idea of these, um, you know, all these ETFs uh, that are sort of people, consider this sort of a type of passive investing, just buying the market. I wonder if you would talk a little bit about, um, you know, Dr. Burry's assessment of the uh, ETF space and if you agree, disagree. It was a fun article and I, I talked to a bunch of my financial planning buddies about it. Um, the general consensus is there's some small truth to what he was saying, but it's nothing that should keep people up at night. But let me back up. Exchange traded funds, ETFs, are at least they started off as basically index funds that trade like stocks on an exchange. Uh, for all intents and purposes, they're very similar to mutual index mutual funds that have existed uh, for for a long time. 
uh, Jack Bogle just died. He was, I think, 100 years old, and he was the father of, of, of index funds. Um, so for 40 years or so, we, we've had index funds. Um, index funds track indexes. So an index fund might pick a, an index like the S&P 500, buy up all the stocks in the S&P 500, which is not necessarily 500, but close to it, stocks. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's been well known for a long time that an index was originally created as a way of tracking investments. It wasn't meant as an investment vehicle. So why, why would you want to invest in the S&P 500? There's really no good reason. But the S&P 500, when you turn on CNBC, when you look at the Wall Street Journal, the stock market is often the S&P 500. It's a very popular index. And it's been known for some time that if you invest in the S&P 500, to a certain extent, not a great extent, you're shooting yourself in the foot because companies that become part of the S&P 500 on the day they become a member of the S&P 500, their stock tends to go up a little bit. The stock, the, the manager of the index fund, whether it's a mutual fund or an ETF, has to buy that stock as soon as it enters the S&P 500. So he's buying it at a slightly inflated price. And then the converse, if a stock goes down, becomes uh, ejected from the S&P 500, the index fund manager has to sell. And so he's selling, and usually the price goes down at that point a little bit, and the stock manager has to sell. So those of us um, in the know are not great fans of buying ETFs or stock mutual funds that track very popular indexes. So to that extent, what he's saying is true. Maybe. It, it depends where but the investors If I can interrupt come. for a second, the idea, yeah. just, just to kind of put this in perspective, the idea is yeah. that like effectively that if you're saying, if you're buying um, an ETF, an S&P 500 um, ETF, uh, if you're buying into that, because these stocks sort of get lumped together, in many cases, the, um, you know, their they're, they're price to earnings ratios are maybe artificially elevated. Is that fair? To a small degree, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, entering the S&P, your stock's not going to double. It may go up a few pennies. Right. We, we have seen that. It usually does. So what is the, maybe you're getting to this, but what's the danger specifically that, that uh, Dr. Burry is, is referring to? Well, if everybody invested in SPY, the S&P, the most popular S&P 500 ETF, which I believe holds more assets than any other ETF, um, if everybody in America suddenly bought SPY, then this effect that we're talking about would, would become more significant. However, there are thousands of ETFs out there. Not everybody is buying SPY. A certain number of people who buy SPY are coming from S&P 500 mutual funds. So there's not going to be any, any real bubble creation there. Um, Generally, I would say if you're going to buy an ETF and you're afraid of a bubble, then just don't buy an ETF that, that's tracking one of the most popular indexes. Um, there are plenty of them out there. But conversely, as I said earlier, indexes were meant to track investments, not to be investments. And there are some ETFs right now 
where the purveyors are creating their own indexes. And you want to make sure if you're buying a cre into a created index that it's an index that makes sense and an index that belongs in your portfolio. Got it. Got it. So what is, um, uh, I guess, just in, in terms of your personal uh, recommendations right now, how are you looking at, uh, you know, the economy as it is right now? Um, you know, what are you telling your clients? And, um, you know, obviously we're, we're just going to look for a little bit of free advice from you at this point and <laughs> mostly just trying to get your perspective on where we are in the economy, what's going on and, and, and how, you know, generally speaking that, that you have been guiding your clients, uh, behavior on that. Well, I, I'd say my number one finance guru is Yogi Berra, because he said, he said, predictions are very hard to make, especially when they involve the future. Right, exactly. Uh, and and I, I refuse to do it. When, when you turn on CNBC, when you look at any financial magazine, mm -hmm. money magazine, you name it, most of the pages are devoted to trying to predict the future. And, you right. know, it doesn't work any better in stocks. It doesn't work any better in bonds than it does right. in uh, trying to predict, uh, you name it. Uh, the weather a year from now. It really doesn't. And this has been very well studied. So I always recommend that my clients build very diversified portfolios with many stocks in many industries in many countries and a diversified portfolio of bonds with long-term, short-term uh, bonds of different countries and treasuries, corporates, and municipals. Um, with that being said, right now, uh, the, the outlook on bonds, I'm going to correct what I said. Bonds, unlike stocks, there is some predictability. And that is you look at the current yield, which I said is about 1.6% on treasuries. Um, that's probably going to be your, your return on bonds over the next five, six years. Because if interest rates go up, bond prices drop. Interest rates go down, bond prices go up. Um, so, you know, you're you're probably going to break even with inflation on your bond portfolio in the near intermediate future. And therefore a lot of people, as we talked about, are buying junk bonds, trying to get higher yield. I think that's a mistake or they're going more into stocks than they should. And I think that's a big mistake. Um, stocks have always been risky. They always will be risky and retirees just have to, or people who want to sleep well at night, you just got to bite the bullet and, and you got to deal with these low interest rates. Um, perhaps you need to spend less. Perhaps you need to extend your retirement a few months. Uh, don't shoot me. I'm just a messenger. But I think going into stocks, especially for people at the cusp of retirement or just starting retirement, is not a good idea. Got it. So uh, tell us a little bit more about your practice and, you know, how people can get a hold of you if, if, if they're uh, interested. I'm here in beautiful Philadelphia. My uh, firm name is Global Portfolios. My website is globalportfolios.net. And I am, again, strictly fee-only. I take no commissions. I work directly with clients and only for clients. I am a fiduciary. Uh, that's the way I've always run my business and always will. Russell, thanks so much for being in Wealth Formula Podcast. It was a pleasure. Be Thank right you. Back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Um, listen, I hope you enjoyed that uh, that interview. I, I did. I really liked it. I think Russell's a really nice guy, a very clear 
And, um, you know, I, I may not have uh, similarities in terms of, uh, you know, investment philosophy and stuff. For me, it, the problem is I just don't see how you can lump in all these individual stocks and even these ETFs and these individual bonds and create, you know, portfolios that have a level of predictability, especially in this market that, um, you know, really is unparalleled. And so that's that's really what concerns me. And frankly, I don't I don't like that kind of systemic risk. I'd rather be in real estate again. I, I, you know, I can control this stuff a lot better than I can control any stock price. So, uh, anyway, it doesn't matter to me whether that describes you or not. What I'd really like everyone to do is just become educated. And as long as you, you know, take a chance to try to teach yourself all this stuff, you make the decision, uh, you know, you, you make the decision for yourself, what you think is, is the right thing for you. Because, what you don't want to do is, you know, uh, in a situation when you're, you know, quote unquote, retiring 20, 30 years from now or whatever, and thinking, gosh, I, I wish I, you know, I wish I'd known that there would be as other options and theories and, and maybe I wouldn't be in the financial predicament that I am now. On the other hand, if you actually knew what you were doing and and um, at least made some decisions yourself. If you ended up in that situation, you may not feel that bad about it. Anyway, um, you know, this is the first, uh, one other thing I want to mention is this is the first show after the Wealth Formula uh, Meetup, Wealth 2.0. Um, and I don't know how it went because I'm recording this before the show actually airs. I'll be flying back as this is... Uh, released. So hopefully it went well. I'm guessing it did. And if you like that kind of environment where you can meet those other people and talk about stuff like, um, you know, like we talked about at the event, real estate, taxes, asset protection, all that good stuff, check out our uh, uh, private group, Wealth Formula Network. That's where we do, we have a course, we have a private uh, Facebook group, we have a portal and also bi-weekly Zoom video calls with yours truly. And that's really fun. It's it's become a really nice little online community. Um, check that out. Join us, wealthformularoadmap.com. That's it for me this week. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Save You with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.